Welcome back to the Graveyard Shift. I am James Pugh. I'm Dave Burrows. Right. At the start of the century, our next That makes guest us sound old. Was... Sorry, I'm going to interrupt you straight away. That start of the century. Go on, <laughs> carry on. <laughs> At the start of the century, our next guest was everywhere. You could hardly pick up a paper without seeing her and her brother looking back at you. We're delighted to be joined by Charlotte Hollins from Fordle Farm. Hello. 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 Charlotte, your story is so inspiring. In a nutshell, you saved your family's farm from the bulldozers and redevelopment and transformed it into a diversifying masterpiece of all things rural. Yeah, that's a setup. I like that. That's Alice not, Moore. That's you, you can have that. You can have that. <laughs> Alice Moore. Do you want more about the story or where we are now? Yeah, because we, we know the story. We were around at the time. Yeah. Um, but like James said, it was the start of the century. That's years ago now, so there'll be some people who yeah, don't realise what happened. Let's, let's, let's scrap start let's the century. Yeah, we'll edit that now. None of us wants to be feel that old. <laughs> well, yeah. A couple of years ago. Yes, uh, even a decade sounds too old. But you're quite right, yes. It was back in 2006 that Four Doors put into community ownership. But you can go back even further than that. You know, our family's been farming the land there for hundreds of years. My late father, Arthur Hollins, many in Shropshire who will have known took over the tenancy at Fordall in 1929. So anyway, we can go back a century. Well, that was before me. No, I'm all no, right no, then. no, none of us are that old. So that's good. We're all, we're all right. Um, and uh, yeah, that time he was 14. His father had sadly passed away and dad came home and worked on the farm with his mum. And at that time we were a mixed farm and dad started to diversify, you know, Almost straight away. He spent the first two years learning about it, you know, as you would when you're 14, yes, not really knowing any different and carrying on the way his father had done, which was ploughing the fields, which was using chemical fertilisers, and many had started to do just post-war. And um, our soils at Ford Hall are very light, they're very sandy. And it didn't take very long in those very light sandy soils when he was overturning and ploughing the fields. Every time it rained, the natural nutrients would just get washed out. And so over those first few years, year on year, more nutrients being washed out of the soil. The soils get depleted. Dad puts more chemical fertiliser on to try and maintain the yields. And as he's doing so, he's spending more money. At the same time, those soils are losing more and more of their micronutrients. The crops are getting weaker. They're starting to get diseased. He's not getting the value out in the crops and the farm starts to fall into debt. And that was really the first turning point for diversification at Ford Hall. It was, you know, dad had found himself in debt. The farm was losing money hand over fist. The soils were in a hugely poor condition. How did he find his way out of this horrible downward cycle? And one thing he had on his side was a great lover of the natural world. And he was out looking at the woodlands at Ford Hall and thought, well, how come every year this area was lush, it's green, it's healthy, and I'm not doing anything with it? And if you ever went for a walk with dad, and many people listening, I'm sure, will have done this. It was never very long before he was down on his hands and knees pulling the cow power apart. <laughs> Look, nice. we're not going to do that today. <laughs> and I brought some cow pats with me. <laughs> <laughs> in my back pocket. Uh, you just smelt me as I came in. Um, no, I, I haven't even got to that point in my life yet. But I do like... I, I, I've started, I Yeah, well, I have started searching for dung beetles. So, uh, you know, I'm getting there. Okay. Um, but, you know, it... it Dad saw the life in that woodland, you know, everything you expect to see in the top few inches of leaf litter, spiders, centipedes, wood lice, and then a bit further down, top few inches of soil, you start to see all the worms. So this stimulated Dad's interest into nutrient cycling. He then learned about the billions of microbes and bacteria that also live in the soil, all those organisms you can't see that are cycling nutrients, and they're the one providing the food that feeds the plants. And he thought, well, this system has kept the planet going for millennia. It's working quite happily. It's free. Um, and within a matter of decades, we changed that system at Ford Hall. And not only was it not working, but Dad was paying for it not work to work because he was buying all this chemical fertiliser mm -hmm. on the land. And so then since just after the Second World War, he turned the farm organic. And there's a whole lot of story in between with him then later on starting the dairy, being one of England's first yogurt producers. And then in the 1990s, when Muller Dairy became our next door neighbour, was then the next downfall of the farm, really. And the irony wasn't lost that one of England's first yogurt producers, as dad was making yogurt at the farm in the 50s, 60s and 70s, selling it right across the country with mm. some of the bigger department stores like Lewis's, Selfridges, Fortner & Mason, to the small market stall, um, you know, the irony wasn't lost that one of England's first commercial yoghurt producers 
was then being squashed in a way by this great by big this German huge giant yogurt, yogurt maker, yogurt you know, yeah. and there's that English German rival yeah. real start to came back and there was a lot of press at the time. You could almost uh, say he was boxed into a Muller corner. Sorry. Ching. <laughs> sorry. You have to get a joke out of every podcast, yeah. <laughs> Um, and so then from the early 1990s, um, our landlord saw the potential to sell Ford Hall for Mollers to expand and develop on. So that's, that's they where, wanted where to the, grow. the risk They were from. next door and they moved next door in the early 1990s. And um, it made sense from our landlord's point of view to, you know, capitalise his asset in that of way. Course, yeah. um, but we'd been there for tenant farmers for so long that we had such long term long so, sorry we had such a secure tenancy agreement so it wasn't that easy to just say so if you're off the land off, yeah, yeah yeah um, and so we had to be each eviction notice it was served then we tried to fight through the courts which would go in our favor then another eviction notice would come through and this was going on right throughout the 1990s so obviously there's a lot of time has passed so I should say you know dad got his first wife was tragically killed in a car accident and um, dad remarried my mom um, in um, the 1980, I think it was, 1981. And soon after, me and my brother came along. So when I was born, Dad was 67. When Ben was born, he was 69. So that's what organic living does for you, <laughs> see? That's, yeah. an advert, that's an advert for <laughs> organic living, isn't it? Wow. <laughs> Dad was jumping over five-bar gates, you know, in his 70s. Awesome. So it keeps you going. And as kids growing up, were you helping out on the farm? Yes. Early age, yeah. Yeah, 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 always. Mm. You know, the first vehicle I learned to drive was a tractor, you know, and I could reverse park a trailer, you know, when I was 12. So. I hope that means you passed your driving tests first I, time. I did. I yeah. was quite... I found yeah. that, yeah, I was of, quite at pleased. At the age of seven. <laughs> <laughs> Not quite that early. <laughs> um, but yes, I wasn't embarrassed. I did fortunately pass it okay. Um, but, you know, what that meant is that, you know, we were quite young when Muller's came to market Drayton. Mm. So, um, and dad was getting older, you know, he was in his seven, mid to late seventies. And so there was a big generation gap, which also meant there was a labor gap mm. on the farm. And so throughout the 1990s, while the family were fighting to stay there, a lot of money was being diverted out of the farm to go into legal costs, mm. which means it wasn't reinvested for, into repairs. We had some very bad storms that had taken the roofs off buildings. We weren't able to afford to repair those buildings. Um, and as a result of that, the farm began to deteriorate. So financial pressures and labour shortages and those combined meant the farm deteriorated. And as a result of that, we were then breaking the tenancy agreement because we weren't able to maintain it as we should be, which then was obviously giving the landlord more ammunition to evict us. And finally, in the March of 2003, the final eviction notice went through the courts. It went in favour of the landowner and we were given 12 months notice to leave Fort Hall Farm. And but what then, what then spurred you to think, OK, we've, we, you know, we've exhausted the legal roots yeah we need to we need to do something different we need to we need to basically rally the community where did that spark come from well i think throughout the 1990s dad had made any staff on the farm redundant so ben and i had taken on kind of all the one in the farm we were feeding the animals before school after school looking after the cows mm. pigs and sheep but a lot of the livestock had also been sold off to pay for the legal fees so through the 90s the legal the livestock we had on the farm was also dwindling and to be honest you know, we were young teenagers and mum and dad were fighting and we were kind of part of it, but not fully engaged in it. And then I went off to university and it was in 2003 when we got the, that final eviction notice. And I think we kind of had just lived with the fact the family were just fighting. Yeah. Yeah. You know, most of our memories as children were the family fighting to yeah. stay there. It just became normal that yeah. we were fighting to stay there. Yeah, you didn't know anything different. So. No, no. And in 2003, I just graduated from university and Ben, who's two years younger than me, was just topping up his degree at Harper Adams oh, Agriculture. Oh, so, so he was doing agriculture. What was yours? He was doing agriculture. Doing? I was doing randomly environmental management with maths. Oh. Nice combination. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> my two loves together. Um, and um, so I just finished my degree and I we both came back to the farm originally to spend our last 12 months there as a family. So at this See, point you had conceded that we're going to be moving. Gone, we'd fought yeah. for so yeah. long. It'd gone through the courts. It'd gone in favour of the landowner. There seemed no other legal options mm. that yeah. we could take. And just at, sorry, just at this point, were you obviously just graduated from uni had you sort of got an other career in mind about what you wanted to do going forward? Not entirely. No. Um, I mean, 
ironically, I was one of the only people at university sending money back home to parents oh, wow. rather than rather the other way around. You know, I was mm. working through holidays to send money to mum and dad so they could cover the bills and mm. things. And so we were kind of still very much tied to the farm and I hadn't re- or I knew I wanted to do something environmentally and sustainable focused, yeah. but I didn't really know what that mm. was. My plan initially was to go traveling after university and go woofing, willing workers on organic farms, oh, okay. which you can do around the world. And you, in turn, for your labor, you get free accommodation and food. And I was planning to go around the world doing that. And hopefully I was going to land somewhere yeah. or find, find something, something that would work. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And Ben just wanted to be a farmer. Um, mm. And livestock was his kind of passion. Um, so initially we came back and thought we want to make the most of those final 12 months. And as Ben and I did that, we then thought, actually, we don't want to leave. We want to stay. Is there anything else we can do? And because we'd fought for so long to try and stay at Fort Hall, during that period, Mullers had then shifted their focus on another piece of land nearby, which meant from our landowner's point of view, his immediate buyer weren't suddenly just sitting and waiting anymore. Mm-hmm. So he had to reassess his options of what he was going to do when the farm then became vacant. And so throughout that last 12-month period, we went back and forth with the agents because you never deal with the landowners no, direct with these things. It's always <laughs> like to be me. quite faceless. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so we were back and forth with the agents, just kind of, is there any option? Can we do anything here? And it was 24 hours before we were due to be evicted in the March of 2004 that Ben and I personally managed to secure a new tenancy for 18 months, essentially while the landowner reassessed what he was going to do. We agreed to pay rent on a property that was, the house was designated uninhabitable by the council because it was in such a state right. of disrepair. Because you hadn't had any spare cash. To we hadn't repaired it and the landowners hadn't yeah. re- had never touched the farmhouse and it was leaking through the roof, the plaster was pu- falling off the walls, you know, it was... No it was wonder a- you went off to university. Exactly. <laughs> I was just saying, no wonder you wanted to stay. Yeah, but do you <laughs> this know is what? lovely, I want to stay. You just get used to these things, yeah. you know I mean? When you, it's all you've known, you just get used yeah. to it, to be honest. And, um, uh, and, and because there was hardly any livestock, but also all the fences and gates we're in a state of poor repair. So it wasn't even, you could he could easily rent out the fields. It wasn't an easy thing for him to rent to anybody. And there Ben and I were saying, we'll pay you rent for the next 18 months and we commit to leaving it in a better state mm. than we've taken off. So ironically, him sort of running it down because he wanted to get rid and ideally sell to Mullers worked in your favour in the end because... At that point. Because it was run down. There were no options for it. At that point, yes, yes. Although hopefully we'd never have got there. But it did. But <laughs> yeah. It's like all these things. It's a journey, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, One thing course. leads yeah, on to something else. Um, so at that time I was 21, Ben was 19. We had no money, no idea what we were doing. We had 11 cows, six pigs, six sheep, took on this rundown farm, and we were like, oh my gosh, this is the most exciting thing ever. How cool is this? We've got a farm to run. You know? <laughs> That's brilliant. Like you do when you're that age. Yeah, and yeah, you think you can conquer the world. Yeah, we can do everything. adventure. Yeah. You can do everything. The world is your oyster. We've got this amazing opportunity. And, and you know, then reality starts to hit that, you know, when you're renting 140 acres and an old farmhouse, the rent is a little bit more than it is in your tiny little flat, shared flat, yeah. you know, at university. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, the on the council tax and all these other bills are just a little bit more expensive. Mm. Um, so we knew from the very beginning the only way we were able to pay the rent was to sell what we had direct to the public so we could make that little bit of extra margin on it. And Ben and I straight away got jobs away from the farms that we could kind of bring in the extra income. And we set up a tiny little farm shop and a little lean-to on the side of the farmhouse. It was literally enough space for a little chest freezer little stall and a little cash chain. We made a little chalkboard at the end of the drive that said sausages for sale. One of our six pigs went off to the local abattoir, came back a sausage, went in the chest freezer, <laughs> and we made about 50 quid in the first weekend, and we thought we were rich. Yeah. <laughs> We've done it. We've cracked yeah. it. I mean, that used to last me two weeks at easy at university. <laughs> like, but no, it doesn't go that far. No, no. <laughs> And so we, we, you know, as a result of that, we kind of then got our supplementary jobs, essentially. So we were working, both of us working full-time elsewhere and slowly building the business up. And we made contact with the Prince's Trust Foundation, who were amazing. And they gave us a £2,000 low-interest loan, 
which are now just to buy some livestock. And, um, you know, the farm had been organic since just after the war. And we, so we, and we had a huge amount of grass because there was nothing there to eat it. So we literally bought the skinniest animals we could find because A, they were cheap. Mm-hmm. And B, we knew then that you all had... the improvement on those livestock would be from organic yeah. pastures yeah. at the farm. So we could feel confident in them what we were selling through the shop. And so we slowly built the business up from there, really. Went to local farmers markets. We put leaflets through pretty much every door in market trading that we could get to. Um, and Started with Muller's. And then um, a few months in, probably nearly 12 months into that 18-month tenancy agreement, we renovated a, a second building at the farm with some help of some friends and started to sell other local produce so we could kind of extend the range and make a little bit of margin on jams, chutneys, you know, other things that people were making around at the time. Then farm shops were all still quite mm. new. Yeah, yeah. Um, and Ben, as I said, we went to farmer's markets. And then soon after, Ben started to do hog roasts. So he realised if we sold the pig cooked at a party or even at a farmer's market in Baps, then we could make a little bit more than just a sausage. And we slowly built the business up from there. And still today, Ben sells absolutely everything we produce at the farm direct to the public. And because of the farming system that we run, then that kind of keeps it sustainable and viable. But the other side of it was kind of how we secure the farm long term, yeah. because ultimately we only had this 18-month tenancy agreement. The landlord's intention was still to sell for development. Um, and during that, for us to get that tenancy agreement, mum and dad formally had to sign a letter to say, we vacate this property. So any historic rights were gone. Right, okay. So as far as the law was concerned, Ben and I were new tenants at Ford Hall Farm. Which presumably makes it harder again for you guys because... It basically meant we, he, they could give us a month's notice yeah. at any point. Um, so they had all the power and yeah. they were guaranteed income, but we had an opportunity. Yeah. Um, so, um, so we knew after the 18-month period, there was there was no... That was, that was it. That was our last chance saloon. There was definitely nothing legal we could come back on. And we knew the landowners... It was about the profit they could make. That was their driving force. Um, And so we kind of looked back in the farm's history, really, and actually saw that when Ford Hall was most successful, there were lots of people involved. And if you think about it, farms everywhere were always very connected to their local communities. They always employed a lot of people for a start. Everyone came and helped at harvest time. Everything was naturally sold locally through the markets, through your local butchers, bakers, and so forth. We had very connected and supportive communities. When Fordall was most successful, there were lots of people involved. And it wasn't just as a traditional farm, you know, when dad diversified in the 40s, initially he turned it into a country club. Mm. So we had, um, he got permission to build a sewage pit during the war, which he was never a sewage pit. He turned it straight away into a swimming pool. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and then he turned the lawn... How do you advertise that? Come and swim in my sewage pit. Yeah. No, no thanks. No. <laughs> and then he turned the lawn into a tennis court and set up miniature golf at the bottom and had an archery course and then created a little dance room and darts room in the farmhouse. And we're next door to Turnhill Army Barracks. Yeah, yeah. And he sold tickets to um, the army officials, the military there, <laughs> as like a... Um, elite, you know, <laughs> country club. For... I mean, but this is this is sort of way ahead of its time. Well, this we're, was in the forties. Yeah, exactly. You know, and this, is, this is what people sort of started doing 10, 15 years ago. Yeah. So even Dad was always thinking out the box. He could never think in a straight line <laughs> ever. He was always like very creative, and and you know, many saw him as an eccentric. But he he did that in the nineteen forties to raise money to be able to purchase a pedigree de- jersey herd because initially he had seen clotted cream down in Devon and Cornwall and was like, I want to do that. I want to bring that up north. The best cows that develop the most cream are jerseys. I want a pedigree jersey herd. So it was always about doing something different. We're doing it quality. But there was always an end result. Yeah. Always an end result. Yeah. Very focused. And so he went and that's so he started making clotted cream then in the late um 40s 
And that's what then evolved into making yogurts. And when he was making yogurts at the farm, he was employing up to 50 people on the factory at Fordall. We had distributors with the old railway line. He used to go outside the driveway, going all the way across the country. Dad did um, tours of WI groups or school groups at the farm. He had people on working holidays. He had a fishing pool. He had farm trails. To be honest, most of what we do at Ford Hall today, he's already done. You know, we're just doing it with a slightly different structure around (laughs) it, calling it perhaps different names. But Dad had done many of this before us. Um, and even when Ben and I were growing up at the farm, there was a farmhouse restaurant. And so we even grew up when there was lots of people mm. coming and going mm. from the farm. And so we thought, okay, well, let's, how do you bring people back to the farm? Mm. And so this started with some volunteer weekends, which actually initiated when Ben and I got that tenancy agreement in 2004. The, you know, as I said, the farm was in a state and we invited some of our friends down, so Ben's friends from college, mine from university, to have a bit of a celebration. And they were like, oh, this is great. It's a bit of a mess, though, isn't it? <laughs> They're like, should we come and help you tidy yeah. up for Grab a weekend? A yeah. yeah, and we were like, yes, please. <laughs> and they came and helped. You know, a lot of stuff had been fly-tipped as well over the years, so it did just look like an abandoned property, yeah. overgrowth everywhere. As I said, there was trees growing up through the roofs of some of the buildings because they'd been there for so long. And they helped us tidy the place up made it more presentable for our little shop, really enjoyed it, said they wanted to come back. So then we put it in the local paper and then other people we'd never met before said they wanted to come and help. And we just gave people soup and bread and tea and cake and they worked for the day and then said thank you to us at the end of it. <laughs> but what was great was it meant from the very beginning we had a huge range of different people, different ages, different backgrounds, so all part of kind of bringing the farm back to life again. And so this was happening through the 18-month tenancy agreement, but we still didn't really know where it was going to go in the future, what it was going to look like, how do we secure it? So we thought, okay, we need to involve more people. And this came in the form of events. And really it was anything we could think of to get the local community onto the farm, hopefully for them to see it as an asset to the local area and something they'd like to potentially help us save for the future. And all of this culminated in a community meeting that we held at the farm in February 2005, it was a month after Dad had sadly passed away, but age 89, he'd, he'd done well. Um, and at that community meeting, we asked the local people what they wanted from the farm, both then or 10, 50 years down the line. And we then said what we wanted from it as farmers, and it was by putting those things, those two things together that we created and came up with the community structure that we have at Ford Hall today. So that's called the Ford Hall Community Land Initiative. We are a, community, a charitable community benefit society. And within that structure, we were able to sell shares, which we set the price at £50 each. People can buy as many shares as they want, but it's one member, one vote, not one share, one vote. So it's not like your traditional stock exchange (laughs) shares. Um, And they are lifelong shares. They can be passed on in a will. As I said, they don't return any kind of financial dividend, but members can return their share back to Fordall for the same value that was paid if someone no longer wants to be a member. And so we were hoping that through this share scheme, which by its very nature is 100% democratic because it's only one member, one vote, we would be able to raise the funds to purchase the farm and then we'd offer a tenancy to a tenant farmer. And at this point, did you know exactly how much you needed to raise? No. No. We didn't have an option to buy it and the landlord was still evicting us at this point. Dad... All he wanted was for this farm to continue, you know, and that was, it was his heart, it was his soul. He spent his life building up the soils Mm. at Ford Hall. You know, and soil takes decades, centuries to improve and Mm. grow and build soil. And it was only in the 90s that dad would walk through the fields and say, I think I've got them to where I want now. You can't take that with you to another farm. So his whole life's work, his life was in that soil. So to have that taken away from him through the 90s or fighting to keep it just felt like they were pulling his heart out. So he found that he found that incredibly distressing mm, yeah, and upsetting. Yeah. You know, and it's like it's hard to describe when you've not grown up on a farm what it's like, but it's your whole life, essentially. Yeah. So it's like yeah, someone's because it's said, not just it's your home, it's where you work, but it's not just you go to work and then you come home and it's it's, it's everything every, you are. It's isn't everything. It? Yeah. And it's your whole social life yeah. as well, because quite often everyone comes to you on the farm. So it's all of your memories and everything you've done in mm. your life is there, basically. Well, yeah, I mean, I uh, we 
had a small holding of about six acres. Uh, and I know how much work that was. But honestly, I, you know, I say this to loads of people, I couldn't have grown up in a better environment. Yeah. It was absolutely fantastic. You know, we had a few animals, obviously a lot smaller scale, but yeah, it was absolutely fantastic. But yeah, you had all these events, you involved the whole family. You know. Yeah. And it, it, it's hard work yeah. and you're working with the elements, but it is so rewarding. Yeah. And I think anyone that grows up um, on a farm or, you know, with a piece of land and even with, you know, going out and using your gardens, we're incredibly lucky, you know, and so, there's so much value in that. Also, I had a tennis uh, pitch uh, at, uh, on our uh, small... Oh, did holding. you? Yeah, oh. yeah. Slash football pitch, so yeah, I was very lucky. Did you, <laughs> did you create that? About well, me and my dad, yeah. Oh, that was lovely. Poor little farm rival. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and... Yeah, and I, sorry, I'm coming back to your question, um, James, but I think in Dad's later years, um, he struggled a lot with his memory, to be honest. And I, and he's, in all honesty, his fight had gone. He was heartbroken in the last few years. And he could see what Ben and I were doing. And he could see that we were trying to bring the community back and trying to do something to retain it. And he loved seeing people back at the farm. He just absolutely lit up when there were people there. But I think he was also a bit scared to believe that yeah, it might, yeah. that but, it might be Because if, if he got too much hope up and it was taken yeah. away from him, he'd already, like I say, he'd already yeah. had his heart broken once. Yeah. Then, yeah. Yeah. But what Dad never failed to do was tell you how important life in the soil mm. was and how connected everything is mm. and how magical and incredible it is because actually there's so much in the soil that even the scientific community, we still don't know and understand. You know, it's actually quite a small proportion of soil microorganisms that we've actually identified. There is a huge amount there that we don't understand. And when you're taught agriculture... It started to come through only in the last few years, but actually, historically, the only thing you're taught is how to chemically or physically change the soil. You're not taught about the biology mm. because we don't know enough about it, and it's incredibly complex, but actually the biology creates your physical and chemical structure of the soil. It creates the conditions for life. And when we understand that, when we work with biology, it does the job for yeah. us. But because we don't understand it, we bring machines in, we bring chemicals in, and we override biology and try to bypass it. And so dad was always trying to bring us back to that point of kind of just remembering how important those connections are, how important that life is, and how important it is to just keep learning. Mm. Yeah. And then those were kind of, I think, some of the key messages that we got back, we got from him. Now, at some point, obviously, you said you got the community involved and, and you started doing the sharing, but it, it, it became, I said I was going to use this phrase, it became a core celeb, didn't it, a little bit. You got some fairly well-known names sort of, in your corner. We did. That actually happened quite late on. So after we kind of... Always the way, the celebs jumping in at the end. <laughs> yeah, <that's> it, yeah. <laughs> to be fair, every, everything, the, all the whole momentum, everyone was last last minute. I think everyone's like, <laughs> especially towards our deadline. Um, so yeah, when we um, came out of the community meeting, we kind of thought about this community share structure. It took us still a number of months to try and convince the landowners to agree to sell it to us. And it was a few months before our, the end of that 18-month tenancy agreement. We managed to get a first refusal option from them. They gave us an extension on our lease, and we had 12 months to essentially raise £800,000 on 128 of what is a 140-acre farm. And so we took this first refusal offer. It was the July of 2005. And, um, <clears throat> and then set about getting ourselves legally incorporated. And back then community shares weren't as prevalent or known about no, as they no. are now. It was actually the old Industrial and Provenance Society legal structure. And it's one of those legal structures that sits on a solicitor's shelves gathering dust and no one really does anything about it. People have to start it. dusting off and going, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah how does this work again? I know business? all about this. Yeah. <laughs> um, and as a result of that, it took us an incredibly long time to get ourselves incorporated. It actually took six months to get our legal structure in place. Yeah. Took another three months after that, actually, to open a bank account because the banks <laughs> With... just didn't understand no. what it was. It, yeah. no. it didn't tick the box. No. Yeah. <laughs> Computer says no. Yeah. <laughs> like, the person was like, well, I know what you're telling me, Charlotte, but the computer but says this. It's not this. in my system, like, yeah. How do we get past this? Um, anyway, so it, it left us then with six months of this first refusal offer period to then start raising the funds. And so we started really the only way we knew how, which was involving people in the farm, talking about what we were doing, sharing the story, 
taking people's ideas on board. And, and that's just what opened up doors along the way. We, we simply opened the farm gate, talked to people. That's how our legal structure was created. It's how all of our projects at the farm now have been created. And it's what's opened doors for us all the way. It's just been our community. Um, and so we started holding, continued with our volunteer weekends, continued with our events. And um, in the February of 2006, it was about two months into our fundraising, we'd raised about £30,000. I'd never seen that money, kind of money in my life before. <laughs> I was like, wow, this is amazing. You know, raised £30,000 in two months. Then you realised how much more you needed to raise. <laughs> no, I was still just really excited. Then, yes, is where young naivety really has a lot to play, you know. But obviously we'd set up a board of directors, which is a, it's a voluntary board as part of our legal structure. It was all the time made up of local people that all wanted to support Fort Hall and believed in what we were yep. doing and wanted it to be an asset for the community. And every few weeks we'd meet up and, you know, I'd update them and they'd offer support and advice where they could. And they're like, oh, Charlotte, you know, it's great. You know, we've raised £30,000 in two months, but we've got four months left to raise, you know, £770,000. <laughs> like, how on earth are we going to do it? And I'm there going, I know, isn't this going well? Because <laughs> it's fantastic. <laughs> Let's just scrap the fact that at the beginning I said I'd done a maths degree. And in that February, we had one of our biggest volunteer weekends to date. We had about 50 people that came from right across the country. Um, we did some tree planting. We actually partnered with BTCV, British Trust for Conservation Volunteers. Did some tree planting and some hedge laying. And um, like I said, we had loads of people that turned up. They'd read about it online. We'd had a little bit of national press at the time as well, which again came because we'd met someone that yeah. was interested and kind of shared the story. And um, one guy came up from London, never been to the farm before, helped do some tree planting and actually helped to hang this gate around this tree planting area. And he was so enthusiastic about the story of the farm and what it all stood for that he came back to the farm two weeks later with his family to show them the gate he'd helped to put in. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah. Ben was like, these people are mad. Like, if you're that excited about gates, I've got loads more gates to get <laughs> Loads of gates need fit in. But of course, it wasn't the fact that he'd specifically helped to put the gate in, but the fact he got involved with a project which he was really passionate about and he wanted to share that with his family. And he, you know, this is a story that replicated itself time and time again, but this story with Christoph was quite pinnacle as well because Christoph then went home and not only did he send emails and letters out to people encouraging them to buy shares, but he also went knocking on the doors on his street. And one of the ladies on his street happened to be a journalist for The Telegraph. Yeah. So we subsequently got a phone call from this journalist asking our permission to write an article on us. And yes, please, I mean, that'd be great. <laughs> I mean, yeah, we need as much publicity as possible. And this article eventually came out in the middle of April 2006. So by the middle of April, we'd raised £77,000. Obviously, our deadline was the 1st of July. So I was ringing up all the local press, as you might remember, James, <laughs> yeah. and, and Radio Shropshire, BBC Midlands TV, and going, please, can you do another update? We've nearly raised £100,000. And the press in Shropshire were so incredibly lovely and supportive. It was just like a massive extended family. And then, oh, Charlotte, you know, we, we definitely will do another update when you've raised £100,000. But you've got two and a half months to still raise over £700,000. Like, how on earth are you going to do it? And I'm still there going, I know, it's this fun. is amazing, <laughs> this is going really well. When that um, Telegraph article came out, it, it really was a turning point. It was... Um, actually the front page of the weekend supplement. It was another full page inside that. It had endorsements from Sting, Prince of Wales, um, Prunella Scales. Um, the king, no less. Yeah. <laughs> now, <laughs> yes. Has he, now. Um, he got a social media account? We'll tag him in when we put this up. <laughs> David Bellamy and so forth. And so it had um, incredible endorsements in it, as well as kind of stories from our members. And it was a very, actually a very honest article that I think is still on the Telegraph website. You know, it's, it's, mm -hmm. there, it's still there. Um, and it was not just two full pages in the weekend supplement, but it was on Easter Saturday. So you can imagine what phenomenal publicity yeah, that fantastic. was. To the point that we, the volume of calls we continued to get for weeks after this article, we had to install an extra phone line oh, wow. in the farmhouse <laughs> just to cope with the volume of calls could continue coming through. And it was interesting at the time because we had all these Telegraph readers obviously ringing us up. I'm so glad it was in the Telegraph and will help you save. And a lot of people that had themselves been part of the farming industry right. and had to leave for whatever reason, mm. you know, the, especially in the dairy side of it, 
they couldn't make any money anymore. Well, presumably some of them would have been through similar to you. They, similar they'd have had instances, the landowner wanting to yeah. sell off for development or... Huge. And there was just so many sad stories that we heard from people that they had lost their family farms for one reason or another. And this was their way of kind of reconnecting and supporting mm. the industry again. And then a lot of people have just seen the way farming had gone and wanted to support it. A lot of people understood how important understanding where your food has come from. For some, it's the fact organic was so... We'd been organic for so long. Some people kind of just wanted to um, I encourage children to learn more about where our food comes from. So there's lots of different reasons. So um, these, these, these celebs that got involved, are any of them shareholders? Does Sting have a share? Um, no, he doesn't. Oh, Although the press did on, report that he did. No, Sting made a donation. Well, Sting has a charitable foundation um, with his wife, Trudy Styler, and they made a donation, which was uh, about £2,000, which was very early on in the campaign, actually. It was the biggest donation we'd had then to date. We were very excited. Penella Scales is a shareholder Penella and Scales. remains a shareholder. The king is the, has the king got shares? No, oh. no, no. We're looking but, for an exclusive here. But to be honest, he, the fact that he endorsed us in the press yeah, made yeah. such a big difference because we were two young people in our early 20s selling £50 shares. People didn't know who we were. Where were they sending their money to? Mm. And, you know, having people like that just endorse us in the press gave everyone the confidence to say, this is legit, yeah. you know, that's, this sounds like a good story. We're going to support people. Do you ever try and get him to the farm? We, many times, <laughs> yes. We got the Queen's cousin. Oh, yes. Uh, as we all hire as the Duke of Gloucester. Um, but that's as far as we've got so far. So we, we, you never know. I, I believe the royal family listen to these podcasts. So, um, <laughs> so if you're listening, yeah. uh, and actually, his, his, uh, his open royal, invitation. Yes, please. We are more than welcome. And in fact, his royal highness, the Duke of Gloucester, is a shareholder. Oh, there you go. Yes, and he's he's actually an architect by training, and he was absolutely lovely when he came. Get him to, to bring farm. it up at the next family lunch. Yeah. <laughs> so how many, how so many, he gets our newsletters. So, oh, well, there you go. How many, so how many shareholders do you have? So we've got over eight. We've had over eight thousand since the beginning. It fluctuates every year, as you know, inevitably people pass on. But we are still selling shares. We continue to sell shares to date. Um, and so we're generally replenishing new members as we lose members. And it's really important to us to keep the share offer open because the farm is in community ownership for perpetuity. And so we need that new membership to keep new ideas coming in to make sure that the farm is reflective of our current members and the future. Um, and so hopefully it's it's thriving and hopefully it will go on so. It's right to say that you're England's first community-owned farm. That's correct, isn't it? Yes. Now, have there been many since? There have. And what's been really interesting is that they have, They all vary. And um, I've, I do a lot of mentoring work with other community groups, sharing kind of what we've learned and how we've done things. And what's really important is that people don't copy what we've done verbatim, but they use the principles and apply those principles in their community, on their piece of land, to find the right, adapt the structure to what works for them. A lot of the time, the groups that we're talking to are actually community-led, so therefore they might be taking up a piece of land and employing a farmer to run it. Whereas because our campaign was predominantly farmer-led, we came up with a slightly different structure. So at Ford Hall, the land is in community ownership for perpetuity. It's there to be utilised as a community resource, but also to offer a long-term tenancy to younger new entrants to the industry. And that was something that was really important for us to incorporate into the structure, and that's most often where we differ to others. Um, and that's probably because of our life experience of kind of understanding how, how, as we've said, slowly the soil changes and therefore how important it is for whoever is managing that piece of land to have a long-term interest in it. You know, most tenancies these days are five or ten years. If you're very lucky, you get 20 years. You can't really do a great deal. You can, you can ruin the soil very quickly, but improving the soil over five or ten years, you're not going to see massive sure. changes. You, you can see, depending on where you're starting from, um, but really not huge, but also you can't take that change, as you said, with you. Whereas if you're offering a individual a long-term tenancy, so we have a 99-year lease for Ben at Fort Dawn. It has succession rights in it for his children if they want to take it on afterwards. So Ben's thinking, how do I farm this piece of land and leave it in a better place for my children mm. to take on, which is all how all old tenancies used to be because most land in this country was owned by estates. Yeah. 
And so those estates passed the estate on through the family. And the tenancies were passed on through the family. You would, it was most common you'd have a three-generational tenancy agreement. And all that got scrapped when the new farm business tenancy came in, I think it was in the 80s. And as a result of that, it all got all legislation now favours landowners with very little rights to tenants. And it's all geared around the fact that land is bought and sold like bread and butter. Mm. The value of land, as we all know, is just rocketing. Yeah. And the interest in land is for investors and people who are profiteering, whereas historically land was about producing food yeah. and looking after the planet and nature and so forth. Um, and so putting a long-term tenancy in has been something really key to our legal structure. Now, one of the reasons that doesn't exist and commonly and continues to not exist is because of the high value of land. And the moment Ben signed that 100-year tenancy agreement, it devalued Ford Hall. So it was bought for £800,000 in 2006. It was a fair price. Um, it, but the moment that Ben signed that tenancy agreement, it was worth less than 400000 because for the next 100 years, it can't be sold for anything other than a working farm with a sitting tenant farmer. And that's why no one wants to tie their land up because they don't want to devalue their asset yeah. in case they want to sell it for retirement or inheritance or whatever. Um, whereas as far as the Ford Hall Community Land Initiative is concerned, that is just in a value that appears in our accounts. It's a paper value. Yeah. We never want to sell it. It's in community ownership for perpetuity. We want work tenant farmers there so we, we can kind of reconnect people to how food and farming works and let them see a working farm in practice. And it's quite fortuitous we're here in the, your base is in the Iron Gage Portrait Museums, which is also all about kind of seeing historic world exactly, in, yeah. in practice, really. Um, so... I'm not um, sure this is the traditional use of this building. No, <laughs> but it evolves and everything has to yeah. evolve. And it, it's, it, it's evolving in respect of our past and looking forward to the future, isn't it? Um, and so that tenancy agreement is there for Ben. But, you know, you can see then why it is not offered out. Um, and it was something that was really important for us to bring into our legal structure. And that's probably one of the main variants between what other people have done. But what's fantastic is to see over the years how the concept of community ownership has grown and evolved. Community owned shops and pubs. Football now clubs. you see football clubs <laughs> all over the place. Um, and they all use exactly the same legal structure as also Community Benefit Society. You can have um, community benefit societies that return a financial dividend and some renewable energy companies especially follow that kind of model and it's it's great because it, it's a real inclusive model that empowers individuals shares the journey with those individuals and makes sure that the way that organization progresses is reflective of the local and wider community um, and so I advocate that structure all the time for so many different <laughs> things you know it's a lot to manage we've got 8,000 members that we are trying our best to regularly communicate with and maintain engaged. Our board members, we have 13 board members, which is elected from our membership. It's a voluntary board, and that's rotated um, on a cycle. But they are an incredibly inspiring um, group of people that give Ben and I a huge amount of encouragement and support to face challenges, take the business forward. You know, the one thing that we took away... You know, it was lots of things. But the biggest thing probably from raising the money in 2006 and placing Ford on community ownership was um, recognising the power of small actions. Mm -hmm. And actually, it doesn't matter how steep that mountain is that you think you've got to climb. But if you've got people sharing that journey with you and everybody does a little bit towards that journey, yeah. incredible things happen. And you just have to, everyone just has to take that one step. You know, I always remember receiving a wonderful letter just after we raised the money from a couple in Birmingham. And um, they'd bought a share, one share at the beginning. They'd seen it on BBC Midlands TV and they'd watched it. And the, um, the wife actually said, oh, that's really lovely. What a great idea. It's a shame they won't do it. <laughs> <laughs> and the husband said, why won't they do it? She went, and they're never going to raise that amount of money in that amount of time. And he said, well, maybe if we put £50 in and others put £50 in, maybe they will do it. And they did put their 50 quid in. Brilliant. And everybody else did. You know, our average mm. shareholder is one or two shares. It's a lot of people with small amounts yep. of money, not the other way around. 
And, you know, we incredibly um, saved the farm. And we got a lovely letter from them afterwards telling us about their conversation. And then the conversation that they'd had afterwards where husband gone, see... I told you. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's almost like a microcosm of, of yours and Ben's uh, relationship yes. with you going, it's all fine. And him going, no, it isn't. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> how close did you get to the deadline? And when you did achieve it, I mean, how did you celebrate that day? <laughs> it was it was all very surreal and very, very exhausting. <laughs> yeah, in the last two weeks of the campaign, we still had a quarter of a million pound to raise. Wow. Yeah. And after Telegraph article came out. We had a huge amount of press afterwards. It went on the Telegraph online, so it went international. So we suddenly had international shareholders getting involved, many of which had had connections to England or the countryside yeah. or something in, at some point. The Guardian did it. Um, although they're like, oh, we were leaving it till the end, Charlotte, to make sure it had most impact. So <laughs> I badgered the Guardian for ages. <laughs> That's and they've not never helpful. Done an article. <laughs> um, but they did. We had a great response from it. And um, The Observer did it. The Mail, The Express. And then BBC Midlands TV picked Didn't, it up. Like I said at the, the start, you couldn't pick up a paper. <laughs> <laughs> Shropshire Star, obviously. Yeah. Really the Shropshire, yes, let's not forget yeah. the Shropshire no. Star. Well, Shropshire were... <laughs> uh, absolute rock for, for County 3 and actually I don't think National Press would have picked it up like they did had we not had such I think I may have been news editing the North Edition at that time I think it's basically down to us basically you can claim a huge amount of credit and then obviously this podcast is going to carry along well exactly expect all the new shares to become now I can't believe that there's anybody in Shropshire who probably hasn't been to Ford Hall Farm now but for the Three people in the county who haven't been. What if you if you come to Ford Hill Farm now? What will you find? What will you see? Yeah. Well, first of all, there's a helicopter easy. going over. I don't. Well, I think we're being invaded. Um, <laughs> just in case that comes not. across on the. <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, first of all, we're very easy to find. We are just off the A53, right next door to Market Drayton. TF9, 3PS, plug it into your Prasat now. You get <laughs> this is there. a practice sales pitch, <laughs> isn't it? You come up the, the driveway and your first thing you see is our lovely old renovated building. So it's the old dairy. Um, it was where part of Dad's yogurt factory was. Um, the milking parlour was adjacent to it. That contains the farm shop and cafe. And all of our buildings at Ford Hall are ecologically um, built and, and renovated. So we've got sheep's wool insulation, air source heat pumps, PV panels. Still got trees growing through them. No, we, have, <laughs> we have removed the trees, but we've planted new trees elsewhere. On the <laughs> we do have a green roof connecting our cafe and farm shop, which is really beautiful, especially during the summer months. Um, and we're open Tuesday through to Sunday, and the farm is free for people to access. You know, something that's really important to us is maintain free public access. So shareholder or not, everybody is welcome to Ford Hall. We have a small little children's area with Betty the tractor, the tractor I learned to drive on. Uh, Doesn't mean anymore. Is that, is that tractor the that one you that tractor. <laughs> Uh, yeah, oh, she's, my she's little sat. boy sat on that track. Yeah. <laughs> um, and you can take a walk through our community garden down to the woods at the farm. And when you go down to the woods, we've got an old Ringwork and Bailey site, which is a scheduled monument. And there is the best view at the farm there going right the way down the Turn Valley, which you just, you don't know is there until you get there. You know, it's one of those yeah. stunning views. You can take a walk along the River Turn. Dogs are welcome on leads. We have lots of farm tra seasonal farm trails with activities for children to do that you can pick up a pack if you want to. Lots of events going through the summer. We have our yurts on site, which you'll see as you come back up, which are these love... Which you, we are our, the site of our board meetings in the early days before we renovated before the buildings. Before it became the, yeah. oh, fantastic. They were accommodation for our volunteers at one point. <laughs> there were classrooms when school visits came another point. <laughs> we hosted many a WI visit and buffet Of course, you've got them for the WI. Yeah. Um, and now they are rented out for glamping. And um, and soon after we moved the, um, we renovated our buildings with the cafe. We managed to put our office in there. So we moved out of porter cabins um, and then the next step was providing some better accommodation for our volunteers. Our volunteers moved from the yurts to a porter cabin. And then in 2019, we moved them into this beautiful straw bale building, which we finished just pre-COVID, which was all built with local volunteers, adults with learning disabilities that come to our care farm, vulnerable young people that attend our youth project and local volunteers and staff. 
straw bales from Shrewsbury, <laughs> lovely lime plaster on the outside, clay render on the inside, car tyres all from waste, car tyres from drain garages. So if in 2019 you got your tyres replaced, some of your tyres might, <laughs> might be the foundations. No concrete, which is beautiful. So if that building disappears, you pick up a few car tyres and you're just soil underneath, put a bit of grass seed down and you're back to field, Fantastic. which I absolutely love. Right. Again, it's got renewable energy and it's got a lovely wooden roof even. So it's a beautiful building that we use for our volunteers, all of our community groups, but it's also now licensed for weddings. So whilst we're not churn out weddings, massive wedding venue, we do a small number of weddings through the year, which are really beautiful and unique and, and bespoke to do. So there's a whole lot going on wherever, whenever you come. And it's, you know, I think the most important thing that we want to retain and continue with the foot is that feeling of welcomeness. You know, we want to allow people to feel comfortable accessing green spaces, going onto a working farm, seeing the livestock. You know, we're not a petting zoo. We're not, you, do, you can't walk down a track and, and there'll be lots of little paddocks with animals in. They're all out in the fields where they are naturally. So you go and find them, you know, and depending on what time of year will depend on where they're grazing. You know, everything's pasture fed. So it's following dad's foggage farming system. So everything's rotated around yep. the farm. You've reeled off this huge list, but what next? What else could you possibly introduce? Any exciting plans you can exclusively There's share always with us? something different going on, isn't it? <laughs> so um, during COVID, we ventured into the world of social prescribing. Um, and so we now offer a social prescribing day on a Friday, which supports individuals which are struggling with loneliness, feelings of isolation. Many have been widowed. Um, for one reason or another, um, they were kind of fe facing feelings of loneliness or possibly struggling with mental health. Um, and so that happens on a Friday. We have capacity to grow that. Um, so if anyone's interested, please get, please get in touch with us. We're also introducing a gardening club on a Friday as well. And we have um, a volunteering group on a Friday. So they're called our Feel Good Fridays. I can see so, why. Yeah. So that's something that evolved as a result of COVID, actually, and we've seen the huge value of it and we're continuing with it and wanting to kind of grow that. Um, and alongside that, there's obviously the mental health and the natural therapy we all get from being in green spaces. And just as human beings, we are built to be in those green spaces. We all know a walk in the woods or listening to the birds Absolutely, or going to the yeah. garden makes us feel better, doesn't it? And the more space you spend indoors, the more we are taking ourselves potentially towards a point which isn't a nice place. Mm. And the more space we spend outdoors, the more we're helping to build our natural resilience, you know. So it's as much preventative as it can be therapeutic. 